you didn't turn with, uh, with Mark to uh, Revelation chapter 1, I hope you will. We're going to be spending, I think, all of our time in the book of Revelation today. So if you would, go ahead and open up there. It means a lot for us to be able to have moments like this, to share our hearts with each other and to God, to be moved with emotion, um, to try to process out and cope with things that we're all dealing with in our lives. And most of all, to remember what our Lord's done for us and what He means to us. Uh, and that's what we're here to do, and that's what we're going to try to do for the next few minutes. As Mark alluded to, I don't know, my guess is a lot of you are stressed out or anxious or nervous or thinking about something that's coming up this week. Uh, or maybe you're not, and that's great if not. But if you are, uh, this is good to be doing, for us to be sitting down and thinking about what the Lord means to us. This text that Mark read for us reminds us of something which he actually alluded to in his prayer. Verse 5 speaks of Jesus Christ, the, fir- the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. There's only one who we fear, there's only one who we serve, there's only one who we trust. And I want us to think about him for a few minutes. But before we do that, uh, I've been thinking about mascots the past few days. Uh, some of you probably watch sports. I don't know. Probably. Of course you do. Some of you do. And probably some of you, your favorite teams, have a mascot. I know some teams are like orange. That's their team thing. It's like, come on, guys. You need to come up with something here, right? Or red or scar, whatever. Um, but there's, there's a lot of teams that have mascots. And, of course, you know, a lot of times they pick animals, which is an interesting thing. Uh, instead of picking out something about themselves as people, they choose to say, connect themselves somehow to an animal, right? So we're the bears, which of course is supposed to mean something. It's supposed to be intimidating. It's supposed to be empowering. It's supposed to be like, we got you. We're going to get you, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, other teams are something like the pelicans, not intimidating, but it connects them to the place where they're from, right? This is, this is the city where we are. We're called the pelicans. Uh, nations do this too. I don't know if all of you have ever looked this up. If you get bored later, you can do this. Uh, but there's lots of nations that pick out animals to represent them. So one that I thought was great is Scotland. Their, does anybody know what their national animal is? Any real uh, national mascot buffs in here? I didn't think so. So uh, the Scottish mascot is a unicorn. No joke, the unicorn. I think they picked it before they figured out there were no unicorns out there, and those were just mythological things. It was like in the 1300s when they picked that. So anyway, or maybe, I don't know, maybe those animals were floating around back then. So, uh, so the unicorn was Scotland's. What were some other fun ones that I saw? Oh, the rooster was the national animal of France. I don't know what that's about. I don't know. Anyway, there's probably jokes there, but I'm not going to do it. And uh, the, then in Australia, they, they have two national anim- animals, the emu and the kangaroo. Duh, kangaroo, right? Uh, now that one was actually pretty thoughtful. The reason why they picked those two animals, I didn't know this until I was doing the, when I got curious and I was doing some research on this, but the, uh, the reason that they picked the emu and the kangaroo is neither one of those animals can walk backwards. They can only walk forwards. And it's symbolic of them as a nation wanting to progress and move forward, uh, which makes sense, because I'm pretty sure Australia started out as a prison colony, so I can imagine why they'd want to move forward and not go backwards. <laughs> New Zealand, similarly, trying to embody some of their national, um, uh, I don't know, values or whatever, it chose the kiwi, which is a, an extremely endangered species, which means they may have to update their mascot soon. But, of course, New Zealand is a place that's really interested in conservation and taking care of their environment and their wildlife and stuff. So they chose an animal that symbolized that. You guys get the point, right? We all choose these animals. And, of course, our nation, we've picked an animal 
that, uh, that embodies something that this nation here in the United States aspires to be, the eagle, right? Isolated, different. Of course, we are kind of isolated, oceans in between and borders, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, this nation likes to think of itself as being high above all the others, you know, and so like an eagle is perched above all the others, that's kind of the idea there. But it's not just the nation as a whole that's picked out an animal to sort of symbolize or summarize the, the meaning of this nation. Those who have different political affiliations also have chosen animals to be their symbols, the elephant and the donkey. By the way, really strange history on that. I'm not going to get into it, but you can check it out and read about that. It's kind of weird and not exactly very complimentary, which I feel is incredibly fitting because I'm not sure that most of our political system complements itself very well, and those animals aren't very complimentary for the reason they were chosen. But in some way, people take these as these symbols, as these things that say, hey, this is what kind of defines me as a person. You know, it's not just people and it's not just nation states that do this. It's not just sports teams. God's done this too. God's given us uh, an emblem, a symbol, uh, if I can use this term, and I don't mean it in a disrespectful way, but a mascot, for us to think about aligning ourselves with, about being like and becoming like and having it shape the nature of our lives. Jesus, a number of times throughout Scripture, but especially in the book of Revelation, is called the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. As a matter of fact, when Jesus first appeared on the scene, John the Baptist, who was introducing people to Jesus, that was the way he introduced He said, Behold, the Lamb of God. First time. And then here, the very last time that we see Jesus portrayed in the story of the Bible, in the series of visions that the Apostle John had, uh, he's, Jesus is symbolized as the Lamb. Even when he's talked about in other ways, like as a child or as a warrior, all these things, the name that he carries throughout this penultimate story in the Bible story as a whole, is the Lamb. This one who, chapter 1 and verse 5 says, is the king, the ruler of all the kings of the earth, the one who rules over his people. Our king is the Lamb. The one who shapes everything about the way we live, the way we think, who we are, the Lamb of God. That's what it is. So I'd like to spend just a few minutes with you looking at how Jesus is described as the Lamb and what that means. Most of us don't spend much time around sheep and lambs, I don't think. It's probably just something we see in pictures or probably honestly in churches where you thought the most about being a lamb. What's amazing about the way God talks about Jesus as the lamb is how um, versatile Jesus' role is as the lamb, the one who shapes our lives and makes us who we ought to be. And it's critical that we learn to think about Jesus in this way so that our lives will be shaped in the way that God wants them to be shaped in his kingdom. Australians want people to be shaped by emus and kangaroos. Bears fans want to be shaped by bears. God wants us to be shaped by the thought of Jesus as the Lamb. And we all need reshaping. As Mark pointed out, this, the book of Revelation was addressed to real churches, real people in space and time. Uh, there are seven churches that get these short little, almost like postcards from Jesus in chapters 2 and 3. And then the rest of the book is to address their issues. And they had a lot of different challenges, much like we have. Some of them thought they were really good Christians because they did a bunch of right stuff and they thought a lot of right stuff and that was good but they had forgotten that the only thing that made them worth anything was the lamb some of them were sleepy and lazy uninterested in really serving god they had forgotten that they were led by the one who had sacrificed himself for them as the lamb some were just beat up people were tearing them down their lives were getting ripped away from them every day 
And they need to be reminded that they weren't the only ones who had been out there suffering before, but they were in the kingdom of the Lamb. I don't know what you're going through right now. I mean, I know what some of you are going through, but I don't know what all of you are going through. Fears, doubts, anger, pride, selfishness, worldliness. I don't know what it is. But if we're going to navigate life and get through it in the way that's right and good and that'll work out in the end, we have to live with a keen awareness that our king, the one who rules everything about our lives, is the lamb. Look at Revelation chapter 5. Right after these addresses to these uh, churches, John has a vision and he gets taken up into heaven and he sees God on the throne. And he sees all these angelic, heavenly creatures singing praises to God and they're lifting him up and they're, you know, they've got crowns because they've won victories and they're throwing them down saying, you deserve this, we don't deserve it. They're just praising God. But then there's, there's a, a, a problem. In the hand of God, the one who sits on the throne, there's a book. And it's sealed up. And this book symbolizes God's plans, God's purposes for the world and for his people. And they looked around. Who can take this book and open it up? And there was nobody. Nobody could open it up. And John, recognizing that this is terrible, God's plans can't be unlocked, God's will can't be unleashed, who could open this up? He starts weeping. Matter of fact, one translation, the way it says it is, I began to cry and cry. You ever done that? Just cry and cry. And that's what he's doing. Because he thinks all of God's plans, all of God's good things are locked up, inaccessible for me, for us. But somebody came to him and said, don't worry, don't cry. And then that said, there's a mascot here, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David the king. He's overcome, and he'll unlock the book for all of us. Man, how exciting. That's what we need. You know, when you're in trouble, when you feel like you've got no, no chance, and everything's lost, and you feel afraid, and all that, you don't know where to turn, a lion, that's who I want. Somebody who's strong like a root, that's who can deliver me, that's who can provide me something and do something for me. But listen to what John saw in verse uh, 6. And so I saw between the throne with these angelic creatures and the elders, there was a lamb. And not just any lamb, but a lamb standing as if he had been slain. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which is powerful, but still, he's a lamb and he was slain. Verse 7 and it was he who came and took the book out of the right hand of the one who sat on the throne, God himself. And when he, the lamb, that one that I thought it was a lion that was coming, but it's a lamb who came and took the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one was holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They fall down before this lamb and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, worthy are you, the lamb that got slain. You are worthy to take the book and to break its seals, for you are slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. Not just those few, but now there's many angels around the throne. And the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads or ten thousands upon ten thousands and thousands of thousands. In other words, an innumerable host of angels. 
the ones who go through and sweep through the earth and destroy armies and who run the world for God whenever he sends them out to do his bidding. These people, they say with a loud voice, verse 12, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then it's not just those creatures, it's not just the angels, but every living thing, every living created thing, which is in the heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And all those living creatures kept saying, they couldn't stop, amen, amen, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped because worthy is the Lamb that was slain. What does this little scene teach us about our king, who is the lamb? The first thing that we all need to embrace and understand and be enlivened by, Jesus, our king, is the lamb who claimed his power through sacrifice. He claimed his power through sacrifice. Do you notice how many times it mentions that he was slain? Throughout the text, it would say, the lamb, he looked like he was slain. The lamb, and actually notice this uh, statement, the first praise. Look at verse 9. Worthy are you to take the book. You're something. You're powerful. You got all this stuff. You got this thing going on. Uh, You're worthy to take the book and to break its seals. Why? Why is he worthy? What makes him so worthy? Look at verse 9 again. What does it say? Because you were slain. Not in spite of the fact that you were slain. In other words, the power of Jesus is not in spite of his sacrifice and in spite of his, from the world's eyes, perceived failure, his death on the cross, of course. That was not a failure. That wasn't a, a, a blip on the, on the radar. That wasn't some sort of dip in what Jesus was trying to accomplish. No, no, no. The sacrifice of the cross is how Jesus claimed his power. He is worthy. He has all power because of his sacrifice. Our king, the king of God's kingdom, the one who leads us in the way that we ought to go and informs everything about how we see the world, our king is the lamb who claimed his power through sacrifice. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, for one, can I just implore you? Don't be attracted to other paths to power. Don't be afraid of other people who take other paths to power. Don't be enamored with asserting your own will to claim power. And you guys know how this goes. Of course, I know, let's just go ahead and say it out loud. We don't have to pretend. This week, everybody's going to be talking about taking power, you know? Who's going to be the president? Who's going to be the, 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 the a representative from this district? Who's going to be the senator of this state? Which party is going to have power in the Senate, in whatever? Listen, those kinds of power grabs, we don't believe in that stuff. We don't believe that that's meaningful power because it's not. And by the way, everybody should know it because in two years or four years, it's all going to get, the deck's going to get reshuffled anyways. That's not real power. Real power is power in the Lamb. The one who was slain according to the will of God, who gave himself up so that we could gain all. That's the real power in the universe, is the power of sacrifice. And you know this. You've seen in your own lives, people who make the biggest sacrifices are the ones who mean the most in our lives, who have the most power to change us and to impact us. How much more true is that of Jesus? And might I say that this isn't just a political thing. I know that's the season we're in, that's where we're attaching everything these days, and I'm pretty sure we're going to stop doing that soon, but let me just insert something here. Some of us also assert our power in other ways. We assert our power with our words, because you're smart. You know how to cut people deep. You know how to make yourself look strong. Stop it. The lamb didn't assert his power that way. And if you're in his kingdom, neither should you. 
Some of us assert our power by how much money we have and we like to show off by the way we dress or the, the things we like to talk about doing or having and look at what I've got and that makes me somebody. Stop it. Having stuff doesn't make you powerful. Giving stuff actually is what makes you powerful in the kingdom of the Lamb. Some of us assert, our, you know, we, we uh, assert ourselves in our bodies, either trying to develop our bodies to be strong. Okay, that's great. It's good to have a strong body, but it only profits you a little bit because that body's going to die one day, okay? So you keep on doing your push-ups, keep it up, but they just know they're not going to do anything one day for you. That's not real power. We assert our power in all sorts of arenas in life. Some of them fine and not a big deal. Some of them explicitly sinful because we feel weak. You don't have to feel that way if you turn to the Lamb. If you turn and trust in his sacrifice and the power that he's given you, and if you trust in his path as a path that will give you real greatness, real power, real glory, not through self-assertive power grabs like the world does, but through the sacrifice of the lamb. You might say, that's okay, that's nice. What, what else, what, what is Jesus doing? These people are worshiping him like he's done something, like he's changed something. Well, what did he change? Look over at chapter 6, Revelation chapter 6. Whenever he opens up this book, it, it may be a little bit surprising what is inside the book. He starts unlocking it, and almost it's almost like, some, of course, the book of Revelation is in these signs and images and metaphors, like Jesus isn't literally a lamb. It embodies something, right? So he unlocks the book, and there are all these things, almost like a mythical creatures that come out. There's these horses that go out to do things in the world and all this stuff to exact, really, vengeance, punishment. And look at verse 9 of Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9. It says, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. These are Christians who in this time, the, the, the people that were being written to, were suffering and had been suffering. By the way, this is always a problem throughout the world. In different places and in different times, God's people suffer. Sometimes death itself for the faith. And so here these people are, and they're underneath an altar. It's like they've been sacrificed almost because they love God so much. And they cry out in verse 10 with a loud voice, and they say, How long, O Lord, sovereign and true, holy and true, will you re refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long is the, are these people going to keep getting to beat us up? And how long are they keep on winning? We know the power you've claimed through sacrifice, but we don't feel very powerful. Because we're getting beat up down here. We're getting destroyed down here as we're following you. And how long is that going to go on until it seems like something good's come, whenever things come around? How long? Verse 11, they were each given garments that symbolized their holiness. And they were told to wait a little longer. But it wasn't time yet. But then the, the next uh, part of the plan that gets opened up shows us that they will be taken care of. Or maybe I should say, those who oppress them will be taken care of. Those who did evil will be taken care of. Those who destroy the earth, as he would say later in the book of Revelation, will get taken care of. Listen to what the Lamb, the Lamb, does. Verse 12. I looked when he, that is the Lamb, broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth like a fig tree, cast its unripe figs when shaken. They're just falling, right? Verse 14, the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And then the kings of the earth, the people who were running the show, or maybe I say the people who thought they were running the show, and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. 
for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Our king is the lamb who claimed his power through self-sacrifice. But also our king is the lamb who will exact perfect justice. Our king is the lamb who will exact perfect justice. Now this is the weird one. I think it's like, yeah, okay, lamb sacrifice makes sense. But y'all ever seen a lamb go crazy? Start attacking stuff, you know, out there on the farm? That, that YouTube video hadn't popped up. That's not, that, we, don't, we don't have that one because it doesn't happen. You're just like, I don't, I don't see how that's even possible. You know, whenever Jesus died on the cross, something happened. A lot of times we talk about the cross as Jesus' love for us, and that's exactly right. It was an act of love. But also, Jesus' death on the cross was an act of wrath, of vengeance, punishment, of justice. Now, not that Jesus deserved all that stuff, but we did. And what the cross is, is Jesus saying, instead of them facing wrath, punishment, pain, and death for their sins, for their many, many sins, the small injustices they commit to the people they love the most, the big injustices that their societies have concocted over centuries, whatever they may be, all the evil and wickedness and unrighteousness and injustice that has occurred on the earth, I'm going to address it by me, myself, taking on the penalty in the cross. Uh, which means that the Lamb, his whole story is about justice. If you're sitting around and you think, man, there's a lot of bad stuff that's not getting taken care of, then good. You're awake and alive. That's exactly right. There's all kinds of stuff that burdens us, frightens us, angers us. But in the kingdom of God, people who claim the Lamb as their king, we don't stay there. We don't stay there. We don't stay afraid. We don't give in to anger and hate. We don't despair. Because we know that sometimes sooner, maybe later, but one way or the other, our king is the lamb who enacts perfect justice on behalf of his God and Father and our God and Father. So you may think, I need to do something to change the world. If you can, then God bless you. Do something. But just know you're probably limited and don't despair when that happens. When you realize, I can't fix all the stuff that needs to get fixed. I can't fix my friends who are in this problem. I can't fix my workplace that has all this messed up corruption and stuff. I can't fix the city that I live in that seems like it's falling apart or the nation or the world. Okay, well look, you're not going to be able to balance the scales. You're not going to be able to right the wrongs. But He will. He will. He did in the cross for you and me to bring us to God and to address the problem of our sins. And He is coming back to exact judgment for all. Our King is the Lamb who will perform God's perfect justice now and forever. Look at chapter 7. I promise you, by the way, we're not going through every single chapter in the book of Revelation. I know it seems that way right now. But look at chapter 7. There's another scene here. John is taken to heaven again. And as he's thinking about all this stuff, wow, Jesus is amazing. Just to think, he's a Lamb. He doesn't look like all the other kings of the earth. He doesn't look like all the other powerful people. He claimed his power through sacrifice. And you know what? He's not like the selfish rulers of the world who are just going to try to use people for their own good. He is going to do what's right and just and good. He's going to take care of all injustices, all in evils that exist in the world. But John, as he's meditating on these things, he's taken into another vision, and he's there in the throne room of God, and he sees an innumerable host of people all gathered around the throne. People from every tribe and tongue and nation, all kinds of folks. 
And John asks one of the residents there in heaven, one of the elders, he says, hey, uh, actually the guy says, hey, do you, got, do you know who these guys are and girls? Do you know who these people are? And John's like, dude, I'm not from here. You know. And so then the guy explains. And listen to what he says, and listen to what he says about the Lamb. Revelation 7, verse 14. He said to me, These are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God. It's because of the Lamb that they get to be in the very presence of God. And they serve Him day and night in His temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to the springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You'll notice that this group of people here is the same group of people that we're talked about in chapter 5. In chapter 5 it said the, the lamb was slain and he purchased for God, people from every tribe and tongue and nation, to be a kingdom, priest to our God. And here in chapter 7 it talks about these people, they're before God serving him and doing what he wants and obeying him, doing all these, like priests would. But I want you to notice besides the service element, what do you see that the people of the lamb have in this scene? Just look at it for a second, verses 15 through 17. What do these people have? For one, they have um, cleansing. Often you feel dirty. You know what I mean? Some of you feel dirty all the time. Because you know you've just done too many bad things. That's what you think. You may be feeling dirty because you're doing a lot of bad things. Some of us feel dirty because of things that happened in the past or just something that we can't even quite explain. Well, there's good news. Our king is the lamb who cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Another thing these people have besides cleansing is uh, purpose. That whole bit about serving in God's temple, God's presence, their life means something. How often do you go through your work life, your other life, whatever that is, I don't know what it is now, your pandemic life, and you just think, what am I doing? Like, I'm just waking up, I guess I'm feeding myself, I'm going back to bed. What am I doing? Our king is the lamb who gives us purpose every day. That we know who we belong to. We know we have a mission in the world. We have things to do. Not for ourselves. For God himself. Not only do these people have cleansing and purpose. These people have God's presence. I'm going to pause and come back to that in a minute. So I'm not going to say anything more about it. But another thing verse 16 speaks about is satisfaction. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore. How often do you feel kind of empty? I mean, maybe literally empty. Maybe right now you didn't eat breakfast. But you know what I'm talking about. That's an image of something much deeper in our souls, where you just are like, I don't know. I just don't have much. Our king is the lamb who satisfies us. If we hunger and thirst for righteousness, he promises that we will be filled. Not only that, we'll be protected. It talks about here, the sun will not beat down on them any longer, nor any heat. You ever feel beat down? Stuff in your bank account, your job, your relationships, your family. Whenever you turn on the TV, when you turn off the TV, when you get online, when you get offline, you just feel beat down all the time. Sometimes stuff you don't even know what's beating you down. Our king is the lamb who gives us protection, who comforts us. 
nor will they cry anymore. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And maybe I should correct that. It's not that they'll cry no more. That comes a little bit later. But when you cry, you get comforted. The tears get wiped away. Uh, here's the point. Our king is the lamb who provides for our every need. Whatever you got going on, whatever you're missing, whatever your problem is, our king is the lamb who addresses our every need. Who else can do that? Who else even promises that? Jesus, our king. And if you question whether he would, you know, I don't know if he would. He gave his life on the cross for you. He left heaven and he came to earth and he lived like one of us except the poorest of us. And he was rejected and despised and nobody thought he was worth anything. And they hung him up on a cross like a piece of meat and they mocked him and spit on him and totally rejected him. You think he wouldn't give you all things? Our king is the lamb who gave his own life on the cross. He will provide for our every need. Now somebody else says, well, hey, maybe he would, but can he? I don't know if he can. I got a lot of needs. I got some real issues. Are you serious? This is the one the scriptures say who brought the world into existence. Nothing was created except by him. Even you were created by him. You don't think he can deal with your issues? You don't think he can provide for your needs? He, whenever he came to earth and he died and we thought it was all over. You know, he loved us. That was sweet. He sacrificed, but it's all done. It wasn't even beginning, y'all. Three days later, he was back from the dead. He rose from the grave to prove whatever you got going on, I can handle it. I got it. Our king is the lamb who provides for our every, every need, whatever it may be. Flip over to Revelation chapter 12. I'm not going to read as much from this section. But in Revelation chapters 12 through 14, the main imagery in the, this part of the story is war. Satan storms the castle of heaven to try to overthrow God's plans, really to overthrow Jesus himself. It's funny, Jesus doesn't even have to fight Satan, though. That's how powerless the evil one really is. Uh, one of the angels, Michael, he and the angels just kick Satan out, and boom, there he is. He's gone. That wasn't the end of the story because Satan comes down to the earth, and he starts attacking. Matter of fact, he gathered some allies. Um, and in the book of Revelation, there's these different portraits, two beasts in chapter 13, which I think when you read them, it's, it's a pretty clear that they the, the symbolize these beasts. I mean, they're all just monsters, really. But these monsters symbolize things like worldly social and political power that people use to dominate and to crush and to oppress. The other beast is uh, deception, maybe philosophical deception, alluring people with false ideas to give their power over to the first beast. Another ally of Satan is not only these things that we see all the time, but also just worldliness, luxury, sensuality, called Babylon in Revelation chapter 17. So Satan is like, all right, fine, I'm going to go all in. He gets all his allies together. He gets all kinds of people to take the mark to say, I'm on Satan's team. I'm against God. I'm against his anointing because I don't believe in the lamb as the king who takes his power through sacrifice. I don't believe in the justice that the lamb will execute. I don't think so. I don't want any part of that. And I don't, I'm not going to trust the lamb to be my king to provide for all my needs. I refuse. I'm not going to do that. But you all know what happens, right? In the book of Revelation, and, and you can read this, every time there's like a battle scene, and man, aren't those great? You know what I'm talking about? I don't know if you're into like the Lord of the Rings, you know, superhero movies where there's a buildup for like a couple hours. And you know, sitting down, when you go to the theater, if we ever do that again, you'll sit down and you'll be like, here we come. We're coming to the battle scene. And like, that's what the end is going to be. And then the battle scene is like half the movie, you know, which in Lord of the Rings is like two hours long. This two hour long battle scene is so intense and you don't know what's going to happen. You know, Revelation, exact opposite. Huge buildup. 
I mean, it's just like, oh, they're all getting together and they're getting all the bad people together and they're going to attack Jesus. They're not going to let Jesus do his thing. And then there's literally a verse and he was cast out of heaven. The end. Or they all got together at Armageddon and he was defeated. Like the battle of Armageddon is the most boring battle in all the Bible, I promise you. I know everybody says it's something different, but it's not. Because our lamb is the king who goes to war for us. And maybe I should rephrase that. Our king is the lamb who wins the war for us. Every time. Every time. And again, if you thought that the war of death is too much, he beat that one. So what else do you think he's not going to be able to beat? Whatever wars, whatever battles you're facing in your life, you're not fighting alone. You're not fighting alone. Or maybe I should say in a little bit different way, you're not being defeated alone. And actually, that's the problem for a lot of us, is we're being defeated. We feel defeated by what's going on in our bodies and, and the temptations we're facing. And we just give in. We feel defeated by people who mock us or exclude us or don't embrace the lives that we live. And then we just, we just give in. We're just defeated. I just I lost. It's over. I can't get it. Stop thinking that way. You're in the kingdom of God. You're a kingdom of priests. You're, you're God's army that's going out into the earth. And really, all you're doing is you're, you're in the parade. You're not really even fighting. He's the one who goes before you to fight. He's the one who defeats the enemies if you just trust him. In chapter 14, there's a portrait of Jesus with his army on Mount Zion. And while it's there, it says of this people, here's what's special about him. They follow the Lamb wherever He leads. They follow the Lamb wherever He leads. Because they know that He'll win the victory. I don't know who you're believing in right now that'll win you some economic victory or healthcare victory or whatever other kind of victory you may need in your life right now. I'm telling you, there's only one warrior who cares enough for you and is strong enough for you that will assure you victory every day of your life from now forever. Our King, the Lamb. Now listen to what that should mean for us. Look at Revelation chapter 12. I should turn there. Revelation 12. There's a little praise section to the Lamb in verse 10. And also an exhortation to us. Revelation 12 and verse 10. It says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, that is Satan, has been thrown down. The evil one, he's still trying to do something, but it's kind of like fourth quarter and the team's up by 30 points and they've still got some players out there, but it's over. That's what it is with Satan. It's fourth quarter and he knows. He's trying to get some stats before the end of the game, but it's over for him. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they, the accused, the weak, the vulnerable, the ones who thought they were being defeated, but who one day woke up and realized they didn't have to be defeated, that their king was the lamb, who wins the war for them. Those people, verse 11 says, overcame him. Why? How did they overcome? Because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives. Oh, excuse me, because of the blood of the Lamb, and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life, even when faced with death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Oh, there's still trouble here. We're not trying to be Pollyannas and pretend like there's no problems in our world, all right? There's a lot of problems. There's still a war going on. At least the cleanup part of it is. But in the meantime, our task is to trust in the Lamb. 
to believe that His blood is our victory, that He saved us from sin and death, and He'll save us always and forever. Our task is to hold to the word of our testimony. What is our testimony? It's that Jesus is Lord, that He's King of kings and Lord of lords, and those who are with Him are the called and chosen and faithful, and they will overcome because of Him. That's the word that we hold to. That's the word that we speak. That's what this thing's all about. And I don't know what kind of discussions you're going to have about what kind of rulers or what kinds of beneficial things for the world and society in the coming days. Let this be your testimony, though, that Jesus is Lord, that He rules over all, and that He's won the war for all who would come and join Him. And I'll tell you, you didn't have to be fighting before. He's not going to reproach you for saying, hey, since you won, can I join? We all hate that, right? Some of y'all, probably y'all, some of y'all have made fun of being bandwagoners. Jesus is down for bandwagoning, all right? Just jump on. He's headed to heaven and he wants you. He has won the war and he wants to take you home. That's what this whole thing is about. Now listen, what that means is you're going to have to follow him wherever he leads. And where he went was out of heaven to earth. Where he went was to the poor and the lowly and the outcast. Wherever he went was to do righteousness in God's eyes, not in the eyes of the world. Wherever he went was to the cross and to the tomb. That's why that last piece there is so important. They did not love their life even when faced with death. Jesus says, look y'all, I'm ruling. I'm the king. But don't forget that your king is a lamb. A lamb who is slain to claim his power through self-sacrifice. A lamb who enacts justice, but not in the ways that the world does or even in the things necessarily the world always wants. Your king is the lamb who will provide for your every need, but that doesn't mean you're not going to cry. Jesus would say, I did a lot. I was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And you will too sometimes if you follow after me, but your king is the lamb who has won the war. So stop loving your life on the battleground and get over here on the winning side. I don't know who needs to hear this. I'm gonna, I want to show you one more thing, but I want to say this right now. I don't know who needs to stop loving their life. My guess is some of us, maybe all of us in some way, shape, or form, we need to stop loving our life. And I don't mean some kind of self-hate, like destructive kind of psychology. I'm just talking about we need to stop loving doing things our way. We need to stop loving the world and the things of the world. We need to stop loving the way that we think things ought to be and start loving His way because your way has only brought you pain. Your way has only made you lost. Your way has only killed every good thing that you, even the stuff that you thought was good, it's blowing up in your face now. Why? Because we're loving our lives too much and we're being defeated. Stop. Follow the Lamb wherever He leads. Love Him. And love what he, I mean, he's earned it, hasn't he? What more could he do to make us love him more than we could even love ourselves? And that's what this whole thing's about. This war wasn't a war for, uh, I don't know, whatever people fight wars for. This is a war for love. The love of God for us. Our king is the lamb who sacrificed himself, claimed his power through the sacrifice of himself. Our king is the lamb who will enact perfect justice now and forever if we'll trust him. Our king is the lamb who provides for our every needs, just like a good shepherd would, leading us where we need to go, giving us all that we need. Our king is the lamb who has gone to war for us and wins the war for us. Our king is the lamb 
who's bringing us home to share his loving presence forever. Look at how this story ends. Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 7. As the wars wrap it up in the story, it says all the people praise. And in Revelation 19 and verse 7, they, they tell the reason why they're excited, why they're rejoicing. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was given her to clothe herself in the fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. By the way, the bride is us, God's people, the ones who He's bringing home, that He went out to fight a war for, to save us and to love us forever. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said, These are the true words of God. In chapter 21, we see why this was such a cause for rejoicing. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, a new environment, a new place entirely. For the first heaven and first earth that was all messed up and broken of sin and death, it passed away. There's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is among men, and God will dwell among them. And they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. And though they cry, He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or pain. Because of the Lamb, the first things have passed away. All things are coming new. Verse 6, He says, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I'll give to the one who thirsts. Are you thirsty? I'll give to the one who thirsts from the springs, not of this world, that will make you thirsty again, but I'll give you of the springs of the water of life without cost. You don't need anything to come to Jesus. You don't need to pay Him off. You don't need to donate to His cause. All you need to do is come. That's it. Without cost. And he who overcomes will inherit these things, and I'll be his God, and he'll be my son. I'll be with him. He'll be with me. God, the, the, our King is the Lamb who is bringing us back into the loving presence of God forever. Verse 22 says, I saw no temple in this place. For the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. In other words, you don't have to go find God. He's going to be right there. You don't have to go to a place to find blessing. You're going to be in blessing. You don't have to go to a place to try to figure out something. No, it's all going to be figured out because you're going to be with him, the Lamb and the Lord are its temple. And the city has no need of a sun to shine or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God Himself has illumined it. And its lamp, the thing that's our guiding light, the thing that gives us hope and clarity and all the good things that light provides, its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, not by the other lights that the nations say that they are. Not by animals that they choose as their mascots, no. The nations will walk by the light of the Lamb. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. 
and they'll bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. All the things that destroy us and destroy the world, those things are not going to be in God's presence because the war will have been won. All of us will be there. We'll stop loving our lives. We'll stop being like that because He's changed us and brought us home to be with Him. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then John is shown a river. It's not just that the environment's great and all this kind of stuff, but it says it shows me a river and the water of life clear as crystal coming down from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of the street. On either side of the river was the tree of life bearing all kinds of fruit and all the time. It's always in season. You don't have to wait around. You don't have to wonder if things going to pay off. No, it's always paying off because you're in the presence of the love of God all the time. Verse uh, 2 says, The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Whatever other source of healing you may think, they're not going to work, or at least not for very long. Whatever source of healing you may be seeking in your own life to deal with your issues, you know it's either backfired and hurt you even worse, or it's only been temporary. But the presence of the love of God, that's the healing for the nations. Verse 3, There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will serve Him. And they'll see His face. They'll see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. And there's not going to be any more night. You're not going to need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun. Because the Lord God will light us up and will reign with Him forever and ever. And on that day, we're going to forget about eagles and donkeys and elephants and everything else. Because our King is the Lamb. And when we get there, maybe we'll sing a song. My country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Home where my king who died now and forever resides and brings me to his side in eternal love. Thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you for the price you paid, bearing all my sin and shame in love you came and gave amazing grace. Thank you for this love, Lord. Thank you for the nail-pierced hands. Washed me in your cleansing flow. Now all I know is your forgiveness and
Father in heaven, we praise you for Jesus our King who claimed his great power and took his throne through the cross. We thank you. We thank you that all the things that frighten us or make us angry, that you'll take care of them. You'll right every wrong. We thank you that every emptiness we feel and every confusion we face, you're our good shepherd who will lead us where we need to go and you'll provide for us everything we need. Thank you, Lord, for going to war for us. The great price you paid to win the war for us and for giving us victory through your blood, through your resurrection, through the hope of eternal life. We long for that life. But we'll really be with you. We know you're with us now, but we long for the day to see you face to face. To be with you where you are. To be like you as you are. In your love forever and ever. Amen. 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 Amen.